Proverbs 26, 27 says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. And it refers to poetic justice. Perhaps the most well-loved story of poetic justice, or ongoing story, is the cartoon Wiley Coyote. How many of you remember Wiley Coyote? Right? He's always trying to chase the roadrunner, right, who eludes his capture. I remember one episode. He has uh, all of his products come from Acme products, right? And he has a, he has a box of dehydrated rocks. So he pulls this little stone out of his box and he puts it in the palm of his hand like this and he takes a little eyedropper of water and on the box it says just add water and he puts a little bit of water and then he holds it over his head and he's looking over the cliff. He's waiting for the roadrunner to come and then boom, all of a sudden the little pebble becomes a huge boulder and crushes him. Or, you know, another time he's He's looking over the cliff edge. He's trying to find the roadrunner. And then, you know, you see that the roadrunner shows up right behind him. And what does the roadrunner say? Meep, meep. And then off the edge he goes, right? And it's, it's one of a, it's a humorous show, but it illustrates well the idea of poetic justice, of digging a pit for your enemy and then falling into it yourself. And here in our story today of, First Samuel, we're continuing the saga of Saul as we watch his downward spiral. And we are in chapter 18, towards the end of chapter 18. And, and in this story, we find that Saul is kind of like Wiley Coyote. He's got plans for David, but all of his plans end up making David successful and bring harm and fear on him. And remember, this is a section, what we call a chiasm. And a chiasm is a parallel so that the beginning parallels the ending and the, the middle is the point of emphasis. And this began in chapter 16 and it ends at the end of chapter 19. And what we saw was the narrator gives us two stories about how David rises to success in the house of Saul, in the court of Saul. He's seen favorably, but then it turns And Saul begins to be afraid of David. He begins to hate David and begins to persecute David. And we saw, not last week, but the week before, that Saul had tried to kill David twice by pinning him to the wall with his spear. Saul, in our text this morning, proves the Proverbs true. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. Furthermore, he provides for us an example of poetic justice. As the harm he intends to David ends up blessing David and bringing harm to himself. And as we read our text together this morning, I want you to keep this question in mind. How does does Saul plot against David? And what we find is that he uses false flattery. And when that doesn't work... He uses false pretense. In that way, Saul teaches us that the wicked succumb to their own plots, but the Lord causes the righteous to succeed. So please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. It's also printed in your bulletin, and it is also found on page 241 
of your pew Bible. Join with me this morning. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give you her to you, to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? And at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask this morning as we come to this portion of your word that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, so that we may behold wonders out of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. One thing we've noticed repeatedly is that Saul should not think for himself. Right? Every time Saul sets about to do some thinking, it ends up bad. Right? He's got his spear, and he's sitting, and he thinks to himself, and then he throws the spear. Not good thinking. Right? David ends up eluding him twice. Now, again, Saul thinks, let not my hand be against David, but let the Philistines do my bidding. I know what I'll do. I'll use my daughter. And so, verses 17 through 20 now really function as a background for why it is that David marries Michael. There are two unsuccessful attempts at David's life, and then Saul is afraid of David and angry at him. 
He owes David a wife. Remember, he promised to the person who went out against Goliath that he would make him wealthy, that he would grant him one of his daughters in marriage. That means a royal alliance, and that he would wipe out all the debt of his family in Israel. And it seems as if Saul has not made good on any of his promises. David is worried that he could not come up with the bride price to to pay the king to be his son-in-law. Not least that he had already earned that position. David declines Merib out of humility, and so she is given to Adriel. But then we come to verse 20, and Saul's daughter Michael loved David. Her reaction to David mirrors that of Jonathan, David's son. Remember, when Jonathan sees David, he immediately loves him. And he makes a covenant with him. And we saw that that was the proper way to react to David as the Lord's anointed, as the Messiah. But that's not how Saul reacts. So Michael loves David just as Jonathan did. And, and by the way, this is the only place in the Old Testament historical narrative where a woman expresses love for a man. Now we have in the poetic section the Song of Songs. And the woman there, the lover, expresses her love for the beloved. But in the historical narrative, it's never mentioned. But Michael loves David. Whereas David's humility led to Saul's first marriage proposal being a flop, now that he knows Michael loves David, Saul springs into action, plotting David's destruction. He says in verse 21, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. Now, either Saul does not think very highly of his daughter, or he is imagining this episode with the Philistines. And I think the latter is is what is intended. So he determines at this time, David, you shall now be my son-in-law. And let's look closely at the two ways that Saul plots against David that end very badly for him. First, Saul attempts to carry out his diabolical plan by using false flattery. He has already had contact with David's humility. David says, who am I? Who is my father's house? I'm the least in Israel. I'm not qualified to be the king's son-in-law. So he plans a course of action to undermine David's humility and induce him to pride. He tells his servants, listen, This is what I want you to say to David. I want you to go in private and speak this way to David. And say this. Say, David, do you know how much the king is talking about you? Do you know how much he delights in you? I mean, he can't stop talking about you over and over again how great you are. He goes on and on about it. And it's not just him. The servants all love you too. Everybody, you're the talk of the town, David. You're the greatest. The king, everybody thinks so. You really should marry the king's daughter. Plus, the king wants it. You deserve it. Go for it. This is what Saul is telling his servants to whisper in David's ear. Saul hopes that David's humility will be worn down by flattery, and he will accept Saul's marriage proposal and marry Michael. But remember... That Saul is anticipating that Michael will be a snare to David. Saul's intentions are not pure. 
He does not care about David. He wants to set a trap. Flattery is a form of deception. It's insincere speech. The words used sound good, even complimentary, but their intent is far from good. The person who flatters means to draw somebody into their trust, usually to gain favor, or in this case, to induce them towards a different course of action. Saul wants David to marry his daughter, but he needs first to overcome David's humility, which he thinks he can do through flattery. Now, I remember as a child, my mom would read to me the stories from Aesop's fables. How many remember those stories? How many remember the story of the fox and the crow? One bright morning, as the fox was following his sharp nose through the wood in search of a bite to eat, he saw a crow on a limb of a tree overhead. And this was by no means the first crow the fox had ever seen. What caught his attention this time and made him stop for a second look was the lucky crow held a bit of cheese in her beak. No need to search any further, thought sly Master Fox. Here is a dainty bite for my breakfast. Up he trotted to the foot of the tree in which the crow was sitting, and looking up admirably, he cried, Good morning, beautiful creature. And the crow, her head cocked on one side, watched the fox suspiciously, but she kept her beak tightly closed on the cheese and did not return his greeting. What a charming creature she is, said the fox. How her feathers shine, what a beautiful form, and what splendid wings. Such a wonderful bird should have a very lovely voice, since everything else about her is so perfect. Could she sing just one song? I know I should hail her queen of birds. Listening to these flattering words, the crow forgot all her suspicion and also her breakfast. She wanted very much to be called Queen of Birds, so she opened her beak wide to utter her loudest caw, and down fell the cheese straight into the fox's open mouth. Thank you, said Master Fox sweetly as he walked off. Though it is cracked, you have a voice sure enough, but where are your wits? The flatterer lives at the expense of those who will listen to him. From this episode, we are warned both against flattery and and encouraged to be on guard against its subtleties. Some of you have struggled your whole lives with being people pleasers. You crave the affirmation of others and in harmful ways depend on it. You will be equally susceptible to flattery as a tool to lure others into getting what you want. Scripture is clear that our words, to be truthful, must not shade our intent through deception. Our words, to be truthful, must not shade our intent through deception. The compliment or praise should be directed to the good of the other, not from the motive of what we can get from them. And this calls us to examine our hearts, seeking the Lord to discover unto us our motives for praising and complimenting others. Do we genuinely rejoice in the success of others, or is bitter envy at the heart of our flattery? Think of Saul. 
does Saul rejoice in the success of David? The whole nation is singing the praise of David. David has, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. Does Saul rejoice in that success? Or is he filled with bitter envy, with anger that's seething below the surface? Secondly, in David's response, we see the right way to handle flattery. Open rebuke. Look at verse 23. Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? David counters the servant's flattery with realism. Is this such a little thing to you? Is it an everyday occurrence that someone should become the king's son-in-law? I know who I am. And I know that I could never afford that kind of bride price. So I will not be flattered into taking the seat of honor just to be shot down when it seems that I am poor and have no reputation. Our Lord tells us, don't take the seat of honor, but wait to be called up, lest you disgrace yourself. You take that seat and then you're told you're not worthy to be there. You go and sit down there. The way David counters flattery is by being sober-minded. David does not consider himself more highly than he should. And this is stunning. Think with me for a moment. Everywhere David goes, they are praising him. David is a victor. News of Goliath's defeat and his rise to success in Saul's court has spread far and wide. Yet David doesn't allow that to go to his head. And it's quite easy to imagine a different outcome. He could have been blinded by flattery to think highly of himself. There's a running joke in my house from a movie called The Wrath of the Titans. And there is a scene where the son of Zeus meets the son of Poseidon in a prison. And the son of Zeus, Helios, says to the son of Poseidon, I have heard that you are a great disappointment. And he responds, yes, I am great. You see, he, he hears what he wants to hear. And so that's a running joke in our household. Yes, I am great. Because he doesn't hear disappointment. He just hears great. David could have listened to the praise and it could have went to his head and he could have said, you know what? I deserve to be the king's son-in-law. Jesus faced this kind of flattery in Matthew chapter 22, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, came to him. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Listen to what Jesus, how Jesus responds. Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? See, they come and they think, you know, we'll just appeal to his 
his goodness, that he loves the truth. He's a truth teller. But, we, but their intent is they want to trap him. You see, either way he answers is wrong in their mind. But Jesus knows the heart. He says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Jesus is aware of their malice. As Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. You see, just like digging a ditch and hoping your enemy falls in it, it's more likely that you're going to fall in it. The same with flattery. You spread a net, but not for your neighbor, but for yourself. Evil intent is prone to come back upon the one who intended it. Alas, sometimes it seems that that is not the case. Flatterers go on flattering, manipulating, and bending others to their wills. But we must never forget that God's justice is perfect. We look for it now, and often it comes. But perfect justice is inevitable. Wicked deeds done with malicious intent will at last be visited on the wicked in the internal judgments of hell. We sang Psalm 73 today, which is our song of the month. And in that psalm, the psalmist is led to despair. He looks around and he sees that the wicked are fat and they seem to be getting away with it. Until the hinge of that psalm when he comes into the house of the Lord and he realizes That the Lord has set their feet in slippery slopes. He sees contemplating the holiness of God and he realizes no one will ever get away with sin. He sees the importance of being near God, of having God with him, of making the Lord his refuge. He says, who am I? Who have I in heaven but you, Lord? There was nothing on earth that I desired besides you. We return to this idea for it is central to this whole section. That Yahweh is with David. That's why he's successful. That's why Saul is not successful because he's not with Saul. He is unsuccessful because the wicked succumb to their own plots. But the Lord causes the righteous to succeed. David is not persuaded by his flattery. Saul redoubles his efforts by reassuring David that he doesn't want a bride price. All he really wants is to be avenged of his enemies. So if David will bring him a hundred Philistine foreskins, he will give David Michael to be his wife. Now, I realize that the concept of a bride price and the whole marriage process goes against our modern sensibilities. Most marriages in most of history throughout the world have been arranged, with the younger folks having very little say in the matter, especially the women. Now, this is not, however, as degrading as it may sound to our modern ears. Now, there were, of course, abuses, but most often, parents care about the generational faithfulness of their family. They want to choose good spouses to continue their family legacy. And in fact, the divorce statistics with arranged marriages are much lower than in our modern 
Hollywood idealized, romantic, and thoroughly individualistic marriages. Now, I'm not advocating for that. I'm merely encouraging you not to see the biblical narrative and look down upon it as so far beneath our modern way of conducting marriage. That being said, the bride price of foreskins is not a common occurrence. This is not an everyday thing, right? Remember that Saul is trying to set a trap for David. He wants to snare him. Israel is not the only nation that has circumcision, but Israel is the nation that has thoroughly integrated circumcision into the cultic life of the community, whereas the Philistines and the Egyptians and other nations around them uh, do not have that. God had made circumcision the sign of the covenant. Signs point to objective reality. So circumcision signified a person's membership in the covenant community. It physically marks someone as being part of the people of God. Now, the Philistines have been repeatedly referred to as uncircumcised, pointing to an objective reality. They are not a part of the people of God. They are not privy to the promises of God. Now, needless to say, the Philistines do not willingly give up their foreskins. David is not going to reason with a hundred men and convince them to be circumcised. So David has to kill a hundred Philistines. Saul is then banking on what we call the law of averages. The law of averages is the commonly held belief that a particular outcome or event will over certain periods of time, occur at a frequency that is similar to probability. So, in a a sense, Saul's thinking, a hundred men against one, it's a good chance he's not going to make it out of this. One of them is probably going to kill David. And he's hedging his bets against that. Saul uses false pretense to lure David to marry his daughter by offering a bride price that will bring him or so he thinks, to the probability of death. Death, by the way, at the hands of a natural enemy, absolving Saul of any ill intent, and thereby removing culpability. Saul does not want to make David a martyr. Right? He doesn't want to... This is the problem that kings found themselves in. Right? They have somebody who is a rival, and if they were to just kill them, then the people would rise up against the king. He can't just kill David, although he will try later on. But he thinks, let my enemy do it. Let me put him in the fiercest place of battle, and they will take care of him. What does that sound like? Ironically, in his sin with Bathsheba, that's exactly what David does with Uriah and the Amorites. But here in this text, David is not deterred by these false pretenses, knowing, first of all, that the Philistines are not Saul's enemy. Remember, Saul, throughout this whole episode, has made everything personal. He wants to be vindicated. He wants to be avenged against his enemies. But he doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about the holiness of God. He doesn't care that these enemies mock God. But David does. David, over and over again, as he has fought the Lord's battles against the Philistines, has had one thing in mind, the honor and glory of God. 
So if this, if this is the price for him to get married, to be avenged of Yahweh's enemies, yes, sign me up, I'm ready. He goes above and beyond, finding the hand of Michael to be worth twice the bride price. He delivers 200 Philistine foreskins to Saul. Instead of this leading to his death, it led to his success, making David now the king's son-in-law. Again, the very center of this text is found in verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Yahweh is with David, which is why he succeeds and why Saul seems to fall into the ditch that he has dug for David. Ironically, Saul himself is killed by the Philistines at the end of 1 Samuel. So the proverb is true. But it is true not just on the individual level as we see here, but it's also on the cosmic level. Jesus made one big mistake. He came to earth and took on flesh, or so Satan thought. God becoming man meant at least to Satan that God became susceptible to death. Talk about being hoisted upon your own petard. The instrument that Satan fashioned to hang the Son of God became the very instrument of his undoing. The pit he dug for the Son of God turned out to be the bottomless pit that he fell into. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.8, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan thought his evil intentions were finally coming to fruition in the death of Jesus. But he underestimated one thing. God was with him! Just like he was with David. God did not abandon his son, but raised him up by the power of an incorruptible spirit. Think of this. The whole world lay under the power of Satan. Meaning it was under sin and death. And Satan has Jesus at this, I got you moment. Jesus defeats sin and death in the very instrument that Satan thought he had him. But instead, Jesus, through his atoning sacrifice, forgives the sins of all of us and reconciles us to God. Part of what I want you to see here is that there is a deep structure to the world. It's not karma. It's not the universe sending you good vibes. It's a personal God orchestrating the ins and outs of all of your life. And that deep structure gives rise to the truth that everything in this life is working together for your good. Christian, do you believe that? It's also a warning that those who plot against the righteous beware In the end, it turns out that your evil was not against some people called Christians, but against God Himself. 
And He will visit His justice upon you for all of eternity as you inhabit the pit that you dug for your enemies. That warning is also for you too, Christians. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Not you. You're not good at it. And you often want to visit it on the wrong person like Saul does. Saul wants vengeance against God. He doesn't realize that's what it is, but that's what he wants. So be sober in your judgments of others. For with the same strictness that you judge, that standard will be used against you. Besides, the Lord is able to make your brother or sister stand. So instead of vengeance, pray for them. Pray for your enemies. Love them. In that way you heap burning coals on their head. And you might find that the more that you pray for him, for them, the harder it is to be angry or hate them. You don't want to find yourself a Saul with every diabolical plan coming back on your head as this text illustrates so clearly. The wicked succumb to their own plots, but the Lord causes the righteous to succeed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that there is a deep structure to this world. And though we, we cry out and long for justice, we want to see the wicked things of this world be brought to an end. But we know that 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 time will come. And we trust in you to bring about your perfect plan. Being slow to anger provides for all of us who are weak and need that slowness to come to repentance. Help us to love our enemies, those who plot against us. And let us not fall in temptation of flattering others and devising schemes and plotting against them so that we don't end up like Saul digging a ditch and falling into it ourselves. Humble us, Father, and teach us to trust in your sovereign hand to work all things together for our good. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen.